What's up, Saul? Can, can we start by giving up for the band? My goodness. I, uh, man, so blessed by all these people serving us, leading us in worship. But Saul Company, we're pumped to be with you all tonight. We're kicking off a new series. So if this is your first evening with us, we're jumping into a series that we're calling Living the Dream, all right? So we got the, uh, the new graphic. We got our new character, Dreamy McCloud, Dreamy for short is the name of this friend that will be with us for the next couple weeks. But here's, here's why we thought of the, the name Living the Dream. The world around you, the culture around you is constantly throwing at you different ways that you should live. Like if you want to have a successful life, you should live for this. If, you're, if you want your name to mean something, you should live for this. If you want to get to the end of your life and say, man, I lived the dream, this is what you need to live for. But what we quickly find is that all of the pursuits that the world puts before us actually crumble on its promises. And so we, we want to turn to Scripture, and tonight, the, the term that we're going to be looking at is the, the idea of living for significance, and this idea of significance is that we, we want to be the type of person that other people would look in on our lives and see it as a life of significance, that our life matters. And so the big idea for tonight is that we all want to be famous. And when I, when I say that word famous, I don't just mean, okay, you're, you're going viral on social media, all these things. Like your name is something that people around the world know. I'm even talking in our day-to-day -day lives, we want to be famous in the eyes of our peers. Like you walk around and you're like, man, did I say that wrong? Like was that hurtful to them? Are they, are they talking about me? It's this constant wrestling that we have in the back of our mind because we want our name to be seen as significant. And we fear anything that would actually tear that down. We want to be celebrated for who we are and what we do. And that's in the big things and that's in the day-to-day. -day. We want to live in such a way that others would look in our into our lives and see it as one of significance. Okay, guys, so one, one way that I remember me kind of running after uh, an avenue of significance in my own life brings me back to my freshman year of high school, so you know this is going to be good. I had... I had a big bowling phase, okay? I had a weird phase in my life where I was crazy into bowling, okay? I had the ball. I had a bowling glove. You might not even know that there's bowling gloves. I had one. Um, and here's the thing. I, I hit the lanes pretty often. And even one time, I, was, I, I convinced myself that going bowling by myself was a good idea, all right? I had to get my reps in. So I stooped to the level of, hey, I'm going to go get a lane all by myself, and I'm going to bowl these 10 frames, Okay? And the whole time seemed totally fine to me. Like the drive over, I'm pumped. I'm like, how many strikes am I getting today? Like as I get my shoes, as I'm walking to the lane, all this seemed fine to me. The moment that it hit me that this was a terrible idea was not even when I rolled the first ball. But when I turned around in that epic moment in bowling where everyone is standing behind you and no one was there. Literally empty seats and Larry two lanes down getting his bowling in. All right, That, that was the only people in the bowling alley at that time. It was a foolish thing for me to try to find my significance in, for me to work really hard for that one time a year that you go bowling with your friends, right? 
Here's the thing. Our desire for fame causes us to move towards foolish things for significance. But the, the tricky thing about it is that it doesn't seem foolish in the moment. Like for me in my freshman year, going bowling literally seemed like the best thing I could do with my money and my time, all right? But for you and where you're at in life right now, the ways that you're trying to pursue to lift up your own name don't seem so foolish to you right now. And what I want tonight to be is for you to step back and to look at where you're at in life right now and to ask the question, how am I seeking for my name to be significant? How am I seeking to lift up my name by the way that I live? Like for you, is that I want my name to be famous in the eyes of a future boss. I want my name to be famous in the eyes of that guy or girl. I want my name to be famous in the eyes of my peers. What is it for you? And have you ever asked yourself the question, like, why is that longing even within us in the first place? So here at Salt Company, we, we want to open up the Bible. We want to turn to the Bible because it shapes everything we do. We believe God's voice is revealed in his word. And so we're actually going to open up to Romans 8. Literally, that song that we just sung comes from the passage that we are going to be diving into tonight. Romans 8, 12 through 17. And we're going to see what is the pathway that the Bible has for us to fame. Starting verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So here's Three places that we're going to go tonight. We're going to look at a misleading promise. We're going to look at a secure sonship. And we're going to look at a disguised glory. So let's look at that first point, a misleading promise. So right away to kick off this passage, it says that we are debtors. This idea that we are under an obligation to someone or something else. And Paul is kind of differentiating between these two types of people. People that live for the flesh and people that live for the spirit, people that are pursuing an avenue that's constantly leading more and more towards death, and people that are pursuing an avenue that's more and more towards life. And I, I want to kind of define the term of flesh in this passage, because it's, it's something we see in scripture a lot, but if you're new around here, it might be a little bit confusing. And we're going to be seeing it come up a lot in this text. So when I say, or when Paul uses the word flesh, He's talking about our corrupted desires of greed, of pride, lust, and power. And the list goes on. Or simply put, it's our attempt to receive glory for ourselves when God is the only one that actually deserves that glory. It's our best attempt to take the throne that God rightfully owns himself. That is the state of operating out of your flesh but Paul is quick to say, we are debtors not to the flesh. Like if you are in Christ, you are no longer debted to your sin. 
What he's saying is that you are no longer under an obligation to live the sinful life that you once lived. It has no longer bounded you to live like that. You've been set free from that. That is the good news that Paul is bringing to you, that you are no longer enslaved to your sin. But Paul wants to show the contrasting life for the one who is living out of the flesh. So throughout this passage, he describes what it's like for the person that lives in the flesh. He says, it's not actually a a freedom in you living for what you want and you running after the pleasures and desires that you want. No, in verse 15, it says, you are actually enslaved to a life of fear. It's not freedom, it's slavery. It's a loss of control where you are enslaved to making decisions that, decisions that lead towards your harm, not your flourishing. It's being trapped in a sinful state where you seek your gain and your pleasures at the cost of other people around you. He's trying to show you that this world promises you significance time and time again, but that's not actually what it leads to. He very clearly says that if you live for the flesh, if you live for this world, the only end is death. And Paul is saying, that's who you were if you are now in Christ. You were a debtor to the flesh, but that's not who you are anymore. Like you are a debtor to the spirit of God. You are bound to the spirit of God. That is your identity now. But if that's not who you are anymore, why does it still feel like that's the case? Why does it still feel like you're bound to the sin in your life? Why does it still feel like you can't tackle what's before you? Why are you still being tempted with all these different promises that your flesh is throwing at you day after day? Your flesh promising you that if you click on that video, you will gain the appreciation that you desire. Your flesh promising you that if you fight incredibly hard, you will finally get the approval of your parents and you will be satisfied. Your flesh promising that if you spend the money on the right clothes, you'll gain the right status. Your flesh promising that if you work hard enough, people will praise your name. All of these promises is the world crying out to us ways to make our name significant, ways to be seen as famous in the eyes of other people. But a question I want to ask you is have these promises ever come through for you? When you look back on, the, on your life and the things that you've chased after, the things that you th- thought you needed in order to be satisfied, have those promises actually come through for you? And we are all too aware at how the promises of the world don't actually come through for us, but they fall so far short of what they promise us. Okay, so in my, my house, we're at a stage in life where toys are just filling up the house. I know you all get it, okay? We got kid toys everywhere. And so we're at this stage, and uh, grandparents just love throwing more toys on the pile, okay? So... Nana V says that she wants to buy a kitchen, and she wants to buy a fridge for our Zeta Bell, okay? And I'm like, okay, Zeta's going to love this thing. She shows me a picture of this kitchen. It is the most modern Scandinavian thing you've ever seen. It is like the coolest kid's kitchen you have ever seen. I'm like, yes, I will take it, okay? And I'm like, Zeta is going to love this thing. We got some people that love play kitchens, I guess. Uh, 
Zeta is going to love this thing. She's going to be whipping up so much stuff. And so we're like growing in anticipation of like, I cannot wait till this gets here. And of course, it takes longer than you thought. We found out it was coming from another country. So we're like, okay, this is going to take a little bit. So the whole time, it's just growing with more and more anticipation. Like, I cannot wait to get this kitchen in our house. And then I get the email. Your package has delivered, okay? And so I rush out to the front door, and I am so stoked to see this thing. And on my front step, I see a package about yay big, okay? So immediately, I'm like, man, I cannot wait to see how they fit a kitchen in that box. Uh, I don't know what kind of efficient packing they have, but I'm excited to discover it, okay? So I, I bring it upstairs, just really having a lot of questions in my mind the entire time. Open this thing up. Wasn't a kitchen, tell you that much. What we received was this bowl. That's it, okay? Oh, I hate that thing. Um, we were promised a kitchen. And what we ended up getting was a very expensive bowl, okay? We were promised a kitchen, and the, the promise actually fell so far short of what we were expecting. The promises of our sinful flesh offer us the world, but fall so far short of what they promise us. This world promises many different paths for you to make your name significant in this life, and none of them end up leading towards significance. None of them lead to what you think they will. That they will. Paul is trying to point out that there is only one destination that this world will lead you to, and that is to death. It clearly puts it here in the passage. And so a question I want to ask you all is, what false promise are you currently believing? Who are you currently trying to prove yourself to? Who are you wishing that could see you as significant? If they viewed you as blank, then all would be well. Next question, why do you feel like you need that? Why do you feel like you need the approval of that person? What do you think it will do for you? And the reason why I want you to wrestle with that question is because your answer to that question is something that Satan is going to be continuously pointing back to to make you feel like you're still enslaved to that thing. Continuously pointing you back to, to, to make you think that you are unable to kill that sin in your life. But Paul kicked off this passage by saying you are no longer in debt to the flesh. That's not who you are anymore. No, you are in debt to the spirit of God. You are now bound to Christ. And so in order for us to fight the sin in our life, we have to realize who we are now bound to. And that brings us to point two, that we are a part of a secure sonship. Let's go back to the text. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Here's what this text is saying over your life. Though at times it feels like you are still enslaved to your sin. 
though at times it feels like you are incredibly distant from God, those statements couldn't be any further from the truth. You are a child of God. And it uses this sonship language, which maybe the girls in the room were like, okay, why does it keep going back to sons? Well, to give you a little context from this day, it was the firstborn son that received the entire inheritance of the family. And so what Paul is in a, a great way articulating is that he's saying everyone, brothers and sisters in Christ, are going to be recipients of the full inheritance of what Christ has for you. He's trying to stir worship, even in the, the women in that church, to show them, hey, you as well are getting the full inheritance like a firstborn son would. That is, for all of you, you are a child of the king. A name that the angels would long to have but will never have the honor of sharing. Satan is going to do everything he can to cause you to feel like you are stuck in sin, but the proclamation over your life is child of God. Another way of saying that is Satan sees that you're a child of God, but he shouts about your failures. Where God sees your failures, but shouts that you're a child of God. And as we look at this passage, we, we get a glimpse into one of the most prominent roles that we see God holding, and that is one of Father. There's a lot of different titles that we see for God, but one of the most prominent ways that he's talked about is Father. Even the idea of Jesus coming as the Son points to God being the Father as well. And as we kind of dip our toe into that concept, I realize that it could be a challenge for some of you to embrace the idea of God being a good father. Because you've probably walked through a past where a father or mother figure has actually left you with more pain. Someone who was put in a role to care for you, but fell so far short of that. And when you think of being a child, it, it's tied more so to being devalued than being seen as valuable. And there's two things I want to say to you tonight. First, we have a Father in heaven who is incredibly near to you. You're not alone in that pain. You're not alone in that processing. But we have a good shepherd that walks through the deepest valleys with you. That we have a father that actually sent his son who would suffer a death on a cross. That he now understands what you're going through. We have a father that's big enough to bear our biggest burdens and he is always with you. Second thing. When you think about the pain that you have walked through, it's a clear indication that that is not how things ought to be. That's not how things were made. That's not how that role was meant to be lived out. And here's what I want to say. Our father that sits on the throne is actually the one that designed how things ought to be. And he will constantly step into that for you. And I just want to share, even from just Romans 8. Guys, I want to invite you to read through all of Romans. But Romans 8 showcases what it is like for us to be adopted by a father like that. And I'm just going to run through the promises that we see in this passage. So what does it mean for you to be a child of the father over all? Here's what it means. That there is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ. 
That he gives you his spirit to set you free from sin and death. He sees you as righteous through the blood of Jesus. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead actually dwells in you and is bringing life within yourself. A spirit, the spirit of God steps in to in your place to cry out to God when you don't even have words to describe the frustration that you are feeling. We are more than conquerors through Christ in us. All things work together for your good, and absolutely nothing can separate you from the fierce love of God. Not, not death, death, nor life, angels or demons, things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate you. Here's what I want to ask. Is there anything else you feel like you could add to that list? Okay, well, that didn't mention that from my life. Like, that would be a reason for me to be separated from God. It didn't mention that. Here's what I want to invite you to. Continue to add those things to that list. And what you're going to be doing is adding things to a never-ending list of things that fall short in separating you from the fierce love of God on your behalf. Nothing can separate you from the love of the God over all. God is a protector of his children. God is a provider for his children. God is always faithful to his promises, even when his children are not. God seeks the flourishing of his children. God will never leave his children. That is what it means to be a child of God. And the challenge for us, for us now is that though we are currently a child of God, we still wrestle with the sin that's present in our life. And so we have to ask, like, how does being a child of God aid us in killing the sin that we face today? And I want to point you to one word that I absolutely love in this passage, and that is the word Abba. What this word is, is it's essentially the first word that a baby cries out, Abba. Crying out to the Father. So it's like Zeta running around the house just saying, dad, 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 dad. Like it, it is this delight and dependence in their Father. And Paul is saying that we join in and we cry out Abba ourselves. It is the same cry that we cry out to the Father. That we are helpless children leaning on our Father to step in on our behalf. So I just read about uh, this psychology study that was done a long time ago. And one of the, the phrases that they were looking into was this concept of contact comfort. And what they discovered is that there would be a, a, a child or a young person. They tested this on monkeys, a lot of unethical stuff going on. But what they found is that there would be a child, okay, who would approach something that would be terrifying to them, something that would create fear in their heart. So what they would do is that they would actually run back to their parental figure to find comfort, that contact comfort. And the response of this all is that once they were comforted, they were actually emboldened to chase back after the thing that once caused fear. And I've actually seen this in my daughter. Like I took her to the aquarium in the Rosedale Mall. I don't even know if you knew there's an aquarium there. There is and so I took her. We take two steps into this thing. She sees the first tank full of these ugly fish, and she comes running back to me. She comes into my arms for about 10 seconds, and then she starts leaning down because she wants down. 
And immediately she walks up to the glass. She starts hitting this glass. She starts talking to the fish, all these different things. Why was she able to do that? She knew that her father was present with her and actually drove out the fear that was holding her back. Christian, how much more confidence do we have when our father is the one that reigns over all? If you are trying to tackle sin in your life on your own, you will constantly fall flat on your face. But here's what we have the opportunity of doing. Here's how God being our father changes our perspective on sin. We run to him being our father and we look back at our sin with a new perspective because we are looking sin in the face and saying, my dad is bigger than your dad. My dad will step in on your behalf. Taking it back to the playground, right? Like, you, you find comfort in the reality that God is your father. And that actually emboldens you to chase after the thing that once caused fear. The thing that once actually made you felt like you were stuck. You are more than a conqueror in Christ. Christian, where in your life do you need to realize that you have a father with you to defeat the sin in your life? Where in your life do you need to realize that the spirit of God is in you, working to kill that sin in your life? Because the quicker we stop relying on our own strength, the quicker we'll run to the one who's actually strong enough to deal with it. The quicker we stop relying on our own purity is the quicker we'll run to the one who's absolutely pure. The one who's full of humility. And so this invitation is for us to recognize who we are as children of God, that we would stop acting as orphans who are on our own, who are trying as hard as we can to impress God, who are working incredibly hard to be good enough, but to realize that we aren't and to run to the Father that we have for Him to fight on our behalf. And so the encouragement for you tonight is that if you are a child of God, Christian, you can kill the sin in your life. Like it's not this experience of you being in this sinking sand where there's no hope for you, but you are walking forward in a battle that's already been won. That is what is true about your life. And so the gift of being God's child is something that we experience now in part as we run to our Father, but it's an experience that we will experience one day to the full. For now, we walk in a disguised glory. Let's look back at the text as we enter point three. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the text clarifies even further. What does it mean that you're a child of God? It means that you're an heir of God. And you are a co-heir with Christ. That you will join in one day on the full inheritance that Christ himself received. The one who rules over all. The one who is enthroned over all. The one who will reign for eternity. You are joining in with him on that. If you are in Christ, you will join in on the inheritance of the one who has been called the King of Kings and the Wonderful Counselor. Charles Spurgeon talks about this idea in a, a different light that I think is incredibly helpful. So he says, if we get nothing, Christ gets nothing. 
If there should be no heaven for us, there is no heaven for Christ. If there should be no thrones for us, there would be no throne for him. If the promise should utterly fail of fulfillment to the least of the joint heirs, it must also fail of accomplishment to our Lord Jesus Christ himself. As long as Christ is taking part in the eternal inheritance, so will you. And this passage ends, this section of scripture ends by saying that you will be glorified with God. And this word for glory is something we see, something we say a lot in church. And I, I want to actually color in, like, what does it mean when we say glory to God? Well, actually, what glory means is to make famous. So when we say we want to bring glory to God, it's that we want to make God's name famous in this world. We want to make God's name famous on this campus. But the text says that you will be glorified with God. What does that mean? What this means is that there will be a day when you will be glorified, you will be made perfect like God, and you will actually be seen as famous in the eyes of God. That your name will be cherished and celebrated in the eyes of the one who made all things. That your name will be valued and appreciated in the eyes of the one who will never leave you or forsake you. That the greatest name in all of creation will know your name. The greatest name in all of creation will look upon your perfection and be amazed by you. Our desire to be significant in the eyes of others actually finds its completion in the reality that our name matters to God. That there will be one day that we will bask in the same glory that he's existed in for all of eternity past. And C.S. Lewis colors this in even more in talking about us being famous in the eyes of God by saying this. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God. Not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work and a father and a son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Our hearts can't even fathom the full weight of glory that will one day be experienced when God will cherish us, when he will celebrate who we are because we will be made perfect like him. 10,000 years from now, we will continue on in partaking in the delight of our God and delighting in him And we will look back on every single pursuit that we lived in this life for significance. Like I look back to my freshman year. Like I look back to my bowling career, absolutely foolish. There will never be any hurt felt anymore from people not valuing you as you should. There will never be a second where insecurity even crosses your mind. There will never be a feeling of being mediocre. There will never again be a question if you are good enough for God. You will constantly be basking in the divine happiness of who God is and who he sees you as. So as we rejoice in this idea of, man, 10,000 years from now, what will we be celebrating all the more and continuing on for all of eternity? The complexity of the Christian life is that where one day we will experience glory here on this earth, it is more of a glory in disguise. 
There's a very important part of the passage that I actually skipped over and I want to look back at now. It says that we will be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In following Christ, it leads to an eternal weight of glory. But we also follow him in suffering in this life. I love what Charles Spurgeon said to his church family on a Sunday morning. He said, the cross comes before the crown and tomorrow is Monday. It's all coming. The cross comes before the crown and tomorrow is Thursday. And what that means is that tomorrow is another day where you will fight temptation. Tomorrow is another day where you will have things thrown at you for ways to be significant in this world. Tomorrow is another day to fight, to, to live in the reality that you are a child of God. Because where our king is currently wearing a, a crown of glory now, he wore a crown of thorns here. And where Christ, who sits on the throne of glory now, he was hung on a cross here. And where Christ wears a robe of righteousness now, he was naked and mocked by all here. The cross comes before the crown. And here's my call to all of you who are in Christ. As we step into tomorrow and we enter another day of trying to fight to be more like Christ and to follow him with our lives, here's what I want to say. Three words, just keep going. It's worth it. Don't settle for the lesser significance that this world offers you. Don't settle for the lesser significance that this campus is throwing at you, that your future career might throw at you, that this person might throw at you with their words. Don't settle for that lesser significance because you know what's in store for you. Wake up tomorrow looking to live as if your father is on the throne because that's exactly where he is. And you are going into tomorrow with a father who is joining in with you to kill the sin that's present in your life, to make you more and more into the type of person who will one day exist in his kingdom. He's trying to remove more and more sin that's causing death in your life to bring about more and more life that you could have it and to have it abundantly. As we push forward through the suffering of this present kingdom, we will rejoice in the significance that will one day be attained, obtained in the kingdom to come. And as we wrap up, I just want to end simply with the words of Jesus here. It says in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Father, as I'm prepping this, there's so many different paths that come up in my mind of ways that I've tried to be significant. Ways that I wanted the attention and the praise of those around me, those in my connection group, those that are my peers, those that are my coworkers, all these different avenues that are constantly screaming for me to try to be significant. But the crazy thing is that we serve a God that went and died for a lot of insignificant people. 
God, that we all join around the reality that we are broken before you, and yet you came to die for us. The most significant man that walked this earth went to a criminal's cross on our behalf. The one that deserved the full glory of his father was actually given the wrath of his father so that we could be invited in. God, we are a child of you, and that is the most significant thing about us. That you look on us with joy and love and delight, and that is the reality that we get to bask in. That's the reality that we get to walk in. So help us cling to that truth a little more tightly than we did yesterday. And tomorrow, help us cling to it a little bit more than we do right now. God, would we wake up tomorrow knowing that we are a child of you, that you are our father on, our thr- on the throne fighting on our behalf. Would we cling to you because that's what you've invited us into. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As I transition back, or as we transition back into worship, I, I want to real quick speak to people in the room who maybe you're hearing this message and you're like, I, I don't know if that's me. Like, I don't know if I'm a child of God. I haven't been around this setting. I haven't really lived a life for Jesus at all. Here's what I want to say to you. It's not about what you can do for God, but it's about what Christ has done for you. That God actually sent his son to be a child of wrath and to experience the death on a cross that you deserve so that you could be welcomed into the family of God. So here's the reality because of the gospel. Anyone can get in on this. Anyone can be invited in to be a child of God because Christ has done everything on your behalf. So what that means for you right now is that you are as welcome to come to Christ right now as you came in this room as you will ever be. That is the invitation, that you would be known and loved by God, that you would be welcomed into his family, that you would have a father on the throne fighting on your behalf through this life and into eternity, that you will celebrate with him for all of eternity. And so here's here's my question, why would you wait for that? Come to him, put your trust in him, see that You needed Jesus on your behalf to be welcomed in and bask in the beauty and the glory of what Christ has done for you. Let's all stand and join in worship of our great God together.